Hey guys, um, it's Lavetta. It's welcome. Miriam. <laughs> welcome to Notorious Women Podcast, a comedy podcast about some of history's most notorious women. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Miriam oh, has Lord. me cracking up. I can't even it, get it out. <laughs> almost broke you today. <laughs> yes, you did. But I love it here. I love it here. And it's actually, yeah. Hopefully you guys love it. And just this is just a quick reminder to like and subscribe Mm -hmm. wherever you get your podcast. Also share with your friends and family. Copy the link and send it to them. (laughs) Oh, and we discovered if you're on Apple Podcasts or if like you listen to Apple Podcasts, go in the app. Go in the app. I think you're already going to go in the app. Yeah, if it's on your phone. But if it's, uh, yeah, like it's like there in the app because Apple is working it out. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, Stitcher and Podcast and Spotify are a lot easier and iHeartRadio are a lot easier apps, I I think. Hopefully. I'm very lazy and I have an Apple phone. And so it says podcasts on the little thing. So I clicked it and there we are. So So do like Miriam. (laughs) Just find it, but but or wherever I, you get. If you get them elsewhere, then it's not a problem. But, yeah, it's not a problem. Yeah. But I mean, how are you feeling? This technically is the last episode of our season one. I'm so excited. Episode thirteen. Are you? Whoop, whoop. I am excited about. Yeah, I like. Like, I feel like it's been a. It's like a good. We've had like a. It's like a solid chunk of of thoughts and ideas and people, you know? Yeah. I love it. Yeah. What about you? Oh, it goes by so fast. Uh, But I I love this. This is a, yeah, this is a passion project. I love talking about, uh, you know, notorious women, whether they be heroic or, you know, horrific. I just think that it's just so important to have these kinds of things where you can learn something and and hopefully laugh, you know? Um, So on that note, I think we should get started. Probably. Um, This week, you are first, my darling. It's me. So yes. Who is your notorious woman for us this week? All right. So my notorious woman. So here's what I was thinking. I was like, we can't end the season without me finding a wonderful Jewish woman to talk about. Of course. Or my mother will yell at me. And, you know, she's not wrong. But I, you know who I found... my favorite Jewish woman is besides you. Uh, okay, because the correct answer is is me. <laughs> but besides me, go on. Beverly Goldberg from the Goldbergs. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm rolling my eyes because I think it's really funny. I think it's really true that like there's something about like Jewish culture that for me is, you know, just like a little PTSD, like I grew up with it. Like, oh God, mm-hmm. that embarrassing voice. I know it so well, which you didn't. So you love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And like people oh. are like Seinfeld and I'm like, I know. I'm like, they're all my uncles. I can't. Oh my God, um, I love it. And Curb, you know, I'm a Curb girl, so. That's mm, really stressful. I love it. <laughs> um, that's just, you know, it's like all Friday night Jewish dinner. say that. <laughs> it's really true. But it's funny because that's, but I love like, when I other cultures that deep dive into like their like ins and outs and and I'm obsessed with it because I can connect to it because it's an other which I grew up as an other but it's not like you know 
I don't go, oh, God, I remember third grade. That happened. It was really embarrassing. And I wanted to die. You know what I mean? So Beverly yeah, I Goldberg, like, I know her. Like, I know her. Oh, my God. I she was four houses down. Okay. She is ridiculous. And <laughs> I love it. That The actress is hilarious. Oh, the, the actress so, is so well, great. She's so great. She's so love good. it. <laughs> but it literally is like, oh, no, this is uncomfortable <laughs> for me. <laughs> PTSD. <laughs> yeah. It's so real. who's your fabulous Jewish woman you have for okay, me today? Okay, so she is complicated when I say she's Jewish. Okay. I don't know that everyone knows that she was Jewish. Her name is Hetty Lamar. What? Ooh, I knew that. What? Ooh, this oh, got to be good. This girl right here. Okay. Okay. So she was born Hedwig Eva Maria Kiesler. I did it. I did it in an Israeli kind of accent. Okay, because, you have to do that again for me. Mm, mm, I don't know that I can. Okay, I can't believe. Hedwig Eva Maria Kiesler. Okay. Yeah, I did it. Do you know my mom used to, you know, Steven Spielberg, the very famous director. Spielberg. Yes. Spielberg. <laughs> Ugh, E.T. was Spielberg. so good. Spielberg. Mom, it's Spielberg. Spiel- I know what it is, Miriam. She's okay. just claiming her people. I get it. Yeah, that's exactly it. She's like, he's one of us. I get <laughs> he's it. He's essentially your cousin. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> cool, mom. Thanks. Um, I've never met him at any Passover we've ever had. Okay. Um, so she was born in Vienna in 1914, and she was the only child of her parents, Gertrude Kiesler. They called her Trude and Emil Kiesler. Um, Emil was a Galician Jewish person. He was a banker and her mother was a pianist and came from an upper class Hungarian Jewish family. Now, um, so her mother actually converted to Catholicism and she described herself as a practicing Christian and raised her daughter as a Christian, but she wasn't formally baptized. And I, as well as my fellow Jews, probably i'm just assuming have a theory about that and that assimilation is that, uh-huh totally yeah. and think yeah. about it vienna in 1914 right yeah. maybe our child will have a better shot at all the things in this world if we're not jewish yeah um so my family would easily be like y'all she's jewish she's jewish 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 okay but, you know, I, obviously that that was like it, it well, it gets more fun as we go along. Don't worry. But um, so but she was raised essentially secular. Right. Okay. So when she was a kid, she showed an interest in acting and she was very fascinated by like theater and film. When she was 12, she won a beauty contest in Vienna because she's so pretty. And yeah, Hedy Lamar is gorgeous. I mean, y'all look up her picture. Yeah. yeah, cannot argue. Um, but she also began to get uh, to gain an interest in invention because uh, her father, who would take her on walks everywhere they went, he would explain how technology functioned. He would he broke it down for her, um, which I think is interesting because he was a banker. So it was just kind so, of a interest. Miriam, are you saying yeah. that even though she had a lady brain, she could understand science and complex theories and I, I, i'm Listen, shocked i'm clutching my pearls darling i'm oh, not no. i'm not 
I can't imagine that that's really what I'm saying because <laughs> I mean, she does have a lady brain. Yes. And we all know. I mean, I said science. You said science and ladies. It's confusing. <laughs> <laughs> Weird, right? Cool. Yeah. Um, so, so this isn't, so she started taking acting classes in Vienna. So one day she forged a note from her mother and went to a place called Sasha film, which was at the time, it was the largest Austrian film production company of the silent and the early talkie era of movies. So, and she was able to get herself hired as a script girl, which is like hilarious to me because wow, I she just like that. walked in. She's like. I mean, I don't have an exact age, but something like 13 or 14. Man, you know. kids were grown ass back then, man. Like 13-year-olds just <laughs> going to work. <laughs> you know, like, they just do what they want to do, you know. Yeah. I mean, and somehow, uh, somehow that was fine. I don't have a clue. I don't know more. Maybe you can tell me, people, world, Lavetta, anyone but I don't know. Like, I didn't know this part about her life. Yeah. And she, wow. that was, that was that. Um, when she, while she was there, she got a role as an extra in a movie called money on the street, uh, in 1930, which was around, she was like 15, 16. Uh, she got a small, uh, speaking part in storm and water glass that same year. Um, and then she was cast in a play, uh, producer Max Reinhardt, uh, saw her and cast her in a play called mm, are you ready it's my favorite title ever I'm ready. It's called it's called the weaker sex <laughs> it's cool right yeah. it's good I think they're talking about women because we're weaker cool cool cool, cool, um, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I just I'm just trying to use my lady brain to pontificate okay <laughs> And we all know that that's going to be a challenge. All right. So uh, it was performed uh, at the theater in Der Josefstadt, Stadt, as my mother would tell me it's pronounced. Um, and he was so impressed with her that Max Reinhardt brought her back with him to Berlin. Now, I, again, I don't know like the specifics, but she's 16. And I feel like my 16-year-old is certainly not going with that guy to go do that thing. No. Well, again, 16-year-olds back right. then were 26. Because like, <laughs> there's some grown-ass people. They had to be to grow yeah, up, that's man. that's true. They really did. But I, I'm with you. My 16-year-old's not going anywhere. Mm -mm. Some dude. Mm -mm. Nope. Mm -mm. Not without nope. me. No, I mean, maybe we'll go together. Uh-huh. Yeah. And if you are speaking with him, I will be in the room the whole time. That's oh, what's yeah. going to happen. Um, or like not because I have things to do, but um, so she actually never trained with him. She actually never appeared in any of his productions in Berlin, but she did meet a Russian theater producer named Alexis Granowski, and he cast her in his uh, directorial film debut called The Trunks of Mr. O.E. I don't know. It was 1931. Oh. Uh, it started Walter Abel and Peter Lorre. Oh, uh, they sound familiar, don't they? Peter Lorre, yeah. I mean, right? but that's also a great same? title. Oh, I yeah. Know, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. The Trunks of Mr. O.E. Titles were better title. back then, don't you think? 
Yeah, I'm terrible at titles. When I'm writing, I'm like, uh, kites? Uh, <laughs> the, the wall? Sky. I don't know. The sky. <laughs> the grass. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's just a good story. Read it, you know. Yeah. I don't think that's a good title either. Um, so he then... He, Gronowski, moved to Paris, but she stayed in Berlin and was given the lead role in a movie called No Money Needed in 1932. Um, then she starred in a film, I knew none of this, which made her internationally famous. Okay, okay. So it's early 1933. She was 18 years old. Okay. She was given the lead in Gustav Machati, Machati, Macha, mm, Gustav's film. Um, called <laughs> Ecstasy. Um, oh, yeah. Have you heard of this? Uh-huh. I've heard about oh. it from uh, Karina Longworth's uh, podcast. You must oh, remember this. Yes. yes. I yeah. love her. Okay. I did not listen to that, that episode. Also another fabulous Jewish woman, Karina. So. Yes, that's true. We're probably cousins. I assume every <laughs> Jewish person is my cousin. <laughs> Um, because probably in some regards they are, but you know, uh, maybe not technically though. Anyways. Okay. So she played in this movie, a, which, you know, this a neglected young wife of an indifferent older man, and it became both celebrated and notorious for showing her face in the throes of an orgasm. Um, also, there was a close-up and brief nude scenes. So, this is 1933, and this is like, I mean, this is not in America, but this is before the Hayes Code. Um, she claims that she was duped by the director and the producer. Well, I, I actually think it, it may, it, it, it slid because it was a European production. Because yeah. the Hayes Code had, had already come into effect in America. But oh, they had? Okay. Yeah, yeah, in America. It happened around the uh, talkies. I thought it was 1934. No, it happened around the talkies because of the Artie, okay. uh, 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 Artie, uh, Art, yes, it, uh, Fatty Ar Arbuckle. 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 <laughs> I was wondering, I'm like, Archie, You're Fatty like Arbuckle Addie scandal. Farbuckle. Yeah. I did listen to that episode. <laughs> yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, Okay, so, but uh, she says she was duped, but other people were, who were part of the movie were like, no, she knows what she is doing. Listen, whatever, I don't care. You know what I mean? Like, I hope she was not duped. I'll say that. But oh, if you know she what? wanted to do it, do it. You're right. It was imposed, it began to be imposed in 1934. But prior oh. to that, after the Fatty Arbuckle scandal, um, they started instituting an, uh, an un, unofficial one. Oh, because okay. the fatty Arbuckle thing happened. So they were like, oh, it's because of uh, this is a side note, guys. Uh, this is like, totally. oh, because of the um, the uh, the scandalous and the debauchery in Hollywood. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. All right. But you're right. But, I, I but I'm corrected. not. I did not. It was not a fever dream that it was 1934. That's good to know. No. Yeah, that's 34. Yeah. <laughs> and then that that scandal, the fatty Arbuckle scandal happened in 1921. Oh, that was so many years before yeah, that. Yeah, and that's what I mean. Because of that, they started, the government was like, what are y'all doing over there in Hollywood? <laughs> like, <laughs> and they're they're all naked looking up, drinking, like what? 
What? Yeah. I don't so, know. What you, what's your question? <laughs> but I'm so sorry. Go ahead, Darn. Um, no sorry worries. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, so she was very dismayed. And then, and she's now disillusioned about taking other roles. So I think she wasn't expecting it to be as racy as it was, is my guess. I also think that people forget when you're young and you're trying mm-hmm. to break into the industry, getting yes. a lead role is very difficult. So it could have been a little bit of she wanted to do it. And then once she got on set, uh, she was, yeah, which that would not be they try and pull that crap nowadays. So I can imagine that. Right. You know, she's on set and they're like, oh, we just want a close up. It, it's going to be fine. And, and she's like feeling uncomfortable, but she doesn't feel like she has the the um, the status or the agency to refuse. And also it's like. Well, will they just get rid of me and hire another actress? Right. And this is a lead role. So, yeah. And and honestly, like in the acting world, very good kind. Like, I think people who are not in 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 the world don't quite understand. Like, we think of it as artistic. We think of it as expression that it's not, you know, that 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 there's a there's a level of art to what it is we're doing when we are naked. And I like that in this world where more and more women are getting like a little bit more of a choice, not a lot tiny bit so it used to be you didn't have a hundred percent of a choice and now there's like you know 92 percent what was the show there's a show oh i forget sal was telling my husband was telling me this that he really likes it and the first season this the lead actress who was amazing was nude for half of it and when they wanted to sign her for her second season, she was like, totally, but I'm not going to be nude because she's already been famous. She's already known and she can make that, those contracts. And so they agreed. Yeah. So also, it's I mean, still not great. you know. Yeah. And like uh, having uh, in my earlier days when I was a model, I've, I've yes, actually girl. posed nude before for like a photographer, like a legitimate photographer. And I only agreed to do it because I knew that the photographer was legitimate. Yes. Um, and artful and not, I was familiar with their work, but they, there's also a closed set. There's ways to handle it. Like, but I also, when I first started modeling, I had a guy, I was doing test shoots and test shoots is what you do to get like your portfolio. Uh, right. Yeah. Like beefed up. And I, <laughs> I watched Top Model for a hot minute in the oh, early okay, 2000s. Yeah. So yeah, that's this, why I know that. <laughs> this food tried to get me, I needed like bikini shots or like bathing suit shots. So we were doing that. And then he tried to get me to just go nude. Now we were shooting mm-hmm. in his mm-hmm. apartment, which is fine. Oh, yeah. And he was like, yeah, I want you to just be just your skin on this bare skin rug. He didn't say nude. He said just your skin. Yeah. And I was just like, no, I don't feel comfortable doing that. And he was like, I don't understand what Good. the big deal is. You know, the t- all the top models doing it, you know, da, 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 da. And, and he mentioned like Steven Mizell and all these like top photographers. I'm thinking, man, you hmm. ain't Steven Mizell. Like I would get naked for Steven Mizell, but yeah. not for you. <laughs> I don't know you like that player. Like, listen, this is, yeah. didn't we all watch fame? Okay. Exactly. Come on. What a bastard. I'm glad yeah. you were able to speak up for yourself. So I'm just like, I, you know, but again, had I been on set, let's say if I was on set and this was like, uh, I mean, if it's for Vogue, it's one thing, but let's say it's on set and they're telling you, oh, um, oh God, what's that famous Italian uh, calendar? 
uh, I think it's the Schiaparelli. No, what is it? It's the one where it's known for the nudity. I have uh, no idea. I, I, I'll, I'll pull it up. Um, okay. And this is not a world I know. But it's go like, on, yeah. Oh, well, let's say a, a, a TV show or a film, right? Yeah. Um, is it Sh- is it Oh, it's an Italian. It's very, very famous, and all the like top models do it. And it's the whole point is like it's nude, but it's artistic nude and high fashion. You can have nudity or whatever, but let's say like I can understand how she would feel. Um, pressure kind to of do pressure what in the moment asking her to do yeah right because you don't and also with film there's so many other people that contribute to the final outcome you never yep. know how they're going to edit it and you would know as an actor yeah as you get older they tell you like if they tell you oh let's just do one take the way i want it even if you don't want to do it that way and yep. every actor knows don't yep. ever do that take because nope. that's the one they're going to use that's the one you're going to win the razzie for Okay. That's the one they're going to use. They're going to be like, why were you so stupid? They'll be like, they said mess around and do it stupidly. <laughs> That's why. Yep. Um, yeah. Did you listen to this? I think it was a This American Life episode where they talked about this writer, editor of like, I don't know, it was like New York. He was a New Yorky something. Um, and his boss was like, go. I think it was Mar- not Mary Stewart Masterson. Oh, my God. Who is the lead in Weeds? What's her name? Oh, um, oh gosh. You know. Okay, y'all Google her. Okay, so he was Mary have, Louise like, Parker. Mary, Mary Louise, Louise Parker. Parker. It was her. Yeah. And she was like, great. You know what I think would be good for this magazine is that I will do some nudes for you. And he was like, oh, this is such an easy project. Thank you so much. And I'll, you know, go through and just, you know, that'll be the article about what it's like. And she said, the deal is you have to do nudes as well. And it's a whole, it's a great story. I don't know what episode it's on, but listen to it. But it's really interesting, his point of view. And then he said he got home, told his wife, and his wife was like, yeah, you have to do this. Because every woman is like, y'all think it's no big deal, but it yep. is a big fucking deal. Please understand. And and he does, he goes through with it. And it's really, you know, and he says, you know, it was, it was and she did her part. And it was all very tasteful. It was all very beautiful. Um, but it was all very, very, very stressful. Um, and you know, I just, I really love, I love that because we like call it what it is. Call it what it is. It's not easy. And the name of that calendar is the Pirelli, P-I-R-E-L-L-I calendar. It's known for that. So the Pirelli calendar, like, and again, there's nothing wrong with nudity in and of itself. And I think most women, uh, even younger women would agree to that, but it's usually like, it's all about who's offering it up and for yep. what purpose. Like yep. again, Steven Mizell, Pirelli calendar. Okay. Yeah. I'll take off my clothes. Cause I'm, uh-huh. hey, I'm going to look good as fuck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to, I'm going to have that print framed on my wall for yeah. everyone to see. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best I'm ever going to look, you know? <laughs> yeah. But it's also, it's like, what do they say about pornography? You know it when you see it. But anyway, darling, I'm sorry to get off track. Okay, that was that was a long road away, but we're back now. Um, It's okay. It was a worthwhile road. The scenery was beautiful. Yes, it was. Um, So so the film itself actually gained world recognition. It won an award at the Venice Film Festival throughout Europe. It was regarded um, 
as like artistic. So it was actually well received. But in America, right? Okay, surprise mm -hmm. to nobody. Um, it was very negatively received and they wouldn't even play it. They it like had negative publicity. Women's groups were very upset. Um, so it was banned in America and in Germany. <laughs> it was like, oh, Rude. that's, yeah, that sounds right. Okay. So she started playing uh, a number of stage roles. Um, and she won accolades from critics in a play called Sissy. Uh, admirers sent her roses to her dressing room. They tried to get backstage to meet her and one very um, insistent admirer was named Frederick, Friedrich, Friedrich, I bet you it's Friedrich, Mondel. Yeah. He became obsessed. Ugh. So gross, gets grosser. Mm. So Mondel, that's so funny because it sounds so Jewish because it is. Anyways, um, he was an Austrian military arms merchant and munitions manufacturer. Um, and he was reputedly the third richest man in Austria. Why was he rich? Because he sold arms to countries that were starting things like wars. Cute. Yep. She fell for him. Uh, he was charming. He was fascinating. She was very young. He was much older. He was like 30, 33. Um, her parents were like, yeah, no, he's friends with Benito Mussolini. And that's bad for us because we're Jewish. Um, but she was like, it's fine. I love him so much. Um, Young women. I love she, him, mother. <laughs> so he was friends with Mussolini and later he became friends with Adolf Hitler. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Girl, girl, you're Jewish. Okay. So August 10th, 1933, she married him. At, she was 18. He was 30, 30. Yeah, it's 33 or 33. <laughs> um, it's cute, but he's a Nazi. Okay. So there is an autobiography that is very much alleged. There are issues with it. The title of it is Ecstasy in Me. So yeah, I'm, I have a feeling she wouldn't have chosen that as a title. Um, it, but she describes him as extremely controlling and he hated her role in that movie. And she, and he, he prevented her from pursuing her acting career. Uh, she claimed that she was kept a virtual prisoner in their in their castle home, Schlo Schloss Schwarzenau. That sounds that sounds like a Nazi camp to me, but it, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. It's just me, my trauma. Um, because you know, I mean, if someone is friends with the Nazis, he's probably not going to be the best husband. I'm just yeah. I'm you know, and I absolutely believe he would. Uh, find a beautiful young girl. Yep. Love that she's beautiful and she's yeah. this actress. Then marry her and then immediately say, you can no longer do that thing that attracted me to you. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and be like, that girl on that screen, she's mine now. Okay. Yeah. Um. So he was like busy selling munitions to the Italian government. Um, And his own father was Jewish also. Um, and then he started uh, getting ties with the Nazi regime of Germany as well. Um, she wrote that both dictators attended lavish parties in their home. 
Um, and she went with him to business meetings where he conferred with scientists and other professionals involved in military technology. And these conferences were her introduction to the field of applied science and nurtured her latent talent in science. So Nazi military technology is what inspired and informed her of her science abilities. Well, the Nazis were uh, very organized and... Uh... <laughs> In their hate campaign, uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. which is why we have all this documentation, because you know what? The Holocaust actually happened, people. Yeah. Yeah. And we can. You prove know it. why? Because yeah. they recorded it all. Yeah. I mean, because it's all they were very they were so proud of themselves. They were proud but, of themselves. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That's why we have all the information. Oh, my God. I mean, OK. So surprise, surprise. Her marriage did not last. Um, I'm shocked. I know, right? I thought I've dreamed of kept prisoner in a castle by a Nazi loving man, but I guess dreams get smashed. Can you imagine also like you're you're Jewish, your husband's Jewish, and they're conferring with the fucking Nazis? I mean, that's where he made Uh, all his money. That's insanity. And you're you're just sellouts are in every group, girl. Like, listen. Right. That is a fact. There's some people who are walking around who are very famous today. Some black people who are mm-hmm. consorting with white supremacists. Yeah. That's so. bad. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I had to tell a Jewish friend of mine that white, not a friend, very Jewish person or yeah, Jewish white person that white supremacists don't like Jewish people. And she had no idea. Really? Yep. Even after the whole like tiki torch, Jews will not replace us. Uh huh. March. Yeah. Okay. I was like, what about in our very recent history? Didn't tell you, but I didn't say that because I I try to be nice, and so yeah, I, I was sometimes nice. you're just like I'm gonna walk away. Mm-hmm. I was like, just so you know, just so you know, you know, like if you're walking by and you think you're super safe and maybe you'll join them, no, they hate you too. And she again, like, Miriam. <laughs> People yes, are dumb. Lavetta. People are dumb, right. girl. They come in all that. colors and ilks yeah. and stripes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of dumb mm-hmm. people walking around yeah. the earth. I'm just it's saying. Real, a lot of dumb it's people. It's real amazing. Yeah. And I thought maybe she didn't know how to read. I thought that was an option. <laughs> no. <laughs> um. Okay. So she separates herself from her husband in 1937. So there's an ele- in the the autobiography, which again is very questionable as to who wrote it. Uh, she wrote, someone wrote that she disguised herself as her maid and fled to Paris. But other accounts say she persuaded him to let her wear all of her jewelry for a dinner party and then disappeared afterwards. Which I hope it was that one. I just... Yeah, I've heard that one. I've heard that one. I like... Yeah. I think that's kind of clever. Um, so she arrived in London in 1937 and she met, this is a fun story. She met Louis B. Mayer, who is head of MGM. I, you know, yep. I mean, I know all about him because I, Jewish man, another Jewish man. Uh, and he was in London scouting talent. Uh, and so he, he actually made her an offer of $125 a week, but she turned it down. And then do you know what she did? What did she do? She booked herself onto the same boat that he was on. So it was a New York bound, uh, you know, fancy, you know, fancy boat. Um, 
and she managed to impress him enough to secure a $500 a week contract instead. He offered her 125 and she's like, mm-hmm. nope, I'm going to show up and looking fabulous like a movie star. You're going to offer mm-hmm. me 500 That's boss moves. Girl, it worked, right? Yeah. Okay. And he was the one who persuaded her to change her name to Hattie Lamar. So, um, his, so Mayer's wife loved the beautiful silent film star, Barbara Lamar. And so she suggested, how about Lamar? And so she, Hattie Lamar. And he promoted her as the world's most beautiful woman. (laughs) Now, that's just a side note here that Jewish women yes. have not had the best representation as far as like objects of desire in Hollywood. So that's that's another thing. Like, yeah, it's like it's very she true. was like a Jewish woman who was like considered like, you know, the most beautiful woman in, in pictures in Hollywood pictures. And that's that's also something that I think. And I it wasn't until I listened to Karina Longworth's podcast that I realized that I was like, oh, yeah, I had I couldn't think of like yeah. one like modern Jewish woman who was a leading lady, a romantic leading. There, lady. there still isn't. And they still and I still see like little films here and there. And they're sh- they're making it very clear that it's like a Jewish girl. So she's like awkward and weird. And then you look at her and you're just like, she's actually beautiful. You're just making her awkward and weird. Um, so one of those things where from the nineties yeah. girls are awkward and weird if they have. Yeah. Okay. And you know, like everyone's all Jews own Hollywood. The, the people making these decisions are whatever they are. They're not helping anyone. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's also a simulation, a simulation, another form of simulation, which yeah. never works. It never works. It doesn't. I mean, how many times do we have to remind ourselves that it never works? I don't yeah. know. But more than more than this, more than this. Um, okay, so 1938, she's making films. Uh, she does Algiers because uh, he loaned her to another producer. She was... Um, it was she was the lead and she was billed as an unknown but well-publicized Austrian actress, which is like a little true. Um, and he wanted her to be the next Greta Garbo or Marlena De- Dietrich. Now, according to one viewer, when her face first appeared on the screen, quote, everyone gasped. Lamar's beauty literally took one's breath away. Um, then she... Uh, was then typecast as the archetypal, glamorous seductress of exotic origin. So <laughs> she's Austrian. Okay. She's Jewish. So her second American film was I Take This Woman, which co-starred Spencer Tracy. That was put on hold. And then she was put into a movie called Lady of the Tropics, where she played This One's Fun. Ready? She played a mixed race seductress in Saigon opposite Robert Taylor. I, Good old I Hollywood. Know. I don't know what happened. I think I blacked out oh, just now. Hollywood, yeah. Because I said words, but they didn't make any sense. I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> Awkward. Some things Hollywood, are like, problematic from the beginning. Well, it's problematic <laughs> from the beginning, so... Yes. <laughs> That's why you can't watch old movies without no. knowing that. Like you can't. Yeah. It's problematic I mean, as fuck. Yeah. 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 And it's funny how it like, really didn't get better. This is like the 30s. 
I tried to show my kids Peter Pan from the 70s. Mm-hmm. Now, Disney is very clever. That movie, it's on there, right? It's on like Disney Plus, but it is hidden. And you can, mm-hmm. you have to be a grown up to watch it. And we couldn't figure it out. And I was like, oh, because I don't know. I don't, I don't remember it. And so I started watching it. And like 17 minutes in, like we turned it off and they were like, why? And we're like, because it is all kinds of not okay. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh my God. Well. It did not. It is bad, 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 bad. Watch the Mary Martin version. Even that's a little questionable. There's a newer, the newer version. Maybe we should do a newest version and I will play Peter Pan. I think, I think <laughs> I'm on, I think I've, I've gone too far off topic. Um. <laughs> I see you. I'm just trying to get a production of Peter Pan going. I know. I know. That's why we're here. Okay. I feel this was the last episode of the season, so I I had to get it in there quickly. You know what I'm saying? Got to get it in there. Yep. <laughs> okay. okay. So, so she does a bunch more movies. There's like seven more movies. You can look it up. That's not what's interesting. Although it's fun. She played an exotic Arab seductress in uh, um, White Cargo, and it was a huge hit. And it was her most memorable film quote delivered with provocative invitation. I'm going to say what the quote is, but I'm not going to do it well. Okay. Her character was Tondaleo, and she says, I am Tondaleo. I make Tiffin for you. Um, which, like... <laughs> I can't, I can't do this. It's like that, that Steve Carell gif from um, The Office. I'm not doing this with you people right now. <laughs> I'm not doing this. Let us getting up and walking away. <laughs> I cannot do this. Nope. Oh, God. It was, oh, God, 1942. Why? Um, and it, like, the line sort of typified the kind of roles she was doing, right? Yeah. Um, and this made her, she was bored. Um, and she started taking up inventing because she was so bored. Um, she did more movies. The last film she did with MGM was Her Highness and the Bellboy in 1945. So her off-screen life, it says here, this is like Wikipedia and biography.com, by the way, um, was, uh, and her personality were very different from her screen image. She was very lonely. She was very homesick. Um, she, she, it says, this is Wikipedia. It said, quote, she might swim at her agent's pool, but shunned the beaches and staring crowds. She couldn't figure out why people would want her autograph. Um, the, there's a quote saying, Hetty was the most incredible personal sophistication, has the most incredible personal sophistication. That's what a quote is. You have to say the actual words, Miriam. Um, she knows the peculiar, peculiarly European art of being womanly. She knows what men want in a beautiful woman, what attracts them, and she forces herself to be these things. She has magnetism with warmth, something that neither Dietrich nor Garbo has managed to achieve. Ooh. Damn. Ouch. Fighting also, words. it sounds a little bit like blonde versus brunette. <laughs> you know, right? Yeah. Exactly. There's cats in Hollywood and they're clawing each other. Okay. Um, I bet a man said that. Oh, a hundred thousand percent. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was. Oh, writer Howard Sharp said that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As man, as man doing man things, you know. Um, but I think it's really interesting because listen, like this is all in the forties, right? 
And she just got herself out of like Nazi Europe, right? Just in time. Mm -hmm. She's Jewish and would have been considered Jewish, whatever her mother had converted to. Right, right. Um, They didn't care. Um, And there's another quote that describes her assimilation. Richard Rhodes said, of all the European emigres who escaped Nazi Germany and Nazi Austria, she was one of the very few who succeeded in moving to another culture and becoming a full-fledged star herself. There were so very few who could make the transition linguistically or culturally. She was really a resourceful human being, I think because of her father's strong influence on her as a child. She also tended to speak of herself in the third person. Now, that's the end of the quote. Hmm. I gotta say that I think... She had a lot of issues with the with she couldn't wrap her head around the dichotomy of her life. That's mm-hmm. what I think. The mm-hmm. fact that she was she spoke herself of herself in third person. She like married a Nazi before they took over <laughs> and then got out. Yeah. I mean, you know, armchair therapist me thinks there's a lot going on, you know? Yeah, definitely. Survivor's guilt too, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I, I have no idea what happened to her parents. Um, so one thing I didn't really talk about yet, um, y'all, she was married six times. Oh, wow. Get it in, Hetty. That's what I'm talking about, girl. <laughs> Listen, girls got to right, do what girls girl. got to do. What a girl got to do, do him. And girls gotta do him, and girl gotta do him, and then some more hymns. Hey, um, it's all good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is bizarre. I can't, I can't quite figure it out. So it says that she adopted a son named James in 1939 during her second marriage to Jean Markey. She married him twice, but so she, throughout her life, she said he was adopted, not biologically related. But it's a years later, her son found documentation that he was the out of wedlock son of her and actor John Loder, who she later then married as her third husband. But then other sources are saying that, no, 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 he really was adopted. I don't know how she would hide an entire pregnancy. They did it back then, but that's... But her husband would have to know, right? Yeah, it sounds bizarre, though, also. Right? And it's like, if you're pregnant... You just tell him it's his, right? Yeah, yeah, that's... Hmm, Makes so no sense. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Um, she had more kids. Uh, Denise, 1945. Anthony, 1947. Um, with John Loder, um, who either adopted James or was already the father. I don't even know. And then she also had other husbands, Ernest Stauffer, uh, W. Howard Lee, and Louis Boys, which is funny. Okay, so the first, the first was a nightclub owner. Then Howard Lee was a Texas oilman, and then uh, Louis Louis Boys was her divorce lawyer. <laughs> None of them lasted very long, but that's fine. She did what she needed to do, yeah. you know. So she wanted to join the National Inventors Council, but was reportedly told she could better help the war effort selling war bonds because she's famous. Right. So I feel like I've heard of this before. If you heard of this, they would go like 
to a war bond selling campaign with this guy yeah. named Eddie Rhodes, right? Yeah. And she Very would common. like, yeah. oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fun. I love it. But you can't do that anymore. Right? No. Like now people are filming it. So they're like, this is the same guy she has flirted with. So let me explain. She would go to these things. She would go on. She'd be like, thank you. And then she'd be like, let me pick a sailor or whatever. And she'd be like, oh my God, you total stranger, come up here. And then he would go up there and she'd be like, giggle. And he would be like, I'm embarrassed. And she'd be like, if you, if you want me to kiss you, you all need to buy war bonds. And when they'd get enough purchases of war bonds, she'd give them a little peck on that cheek. Right. And then they move on and nobody would know that it was the same guy everywhere. Yeah, it's kind of like a uh, it's like a U USO slash war bond, like, you know, rallying the troops like yeah. uh, propaganda. Um, propaganda. It's kind of like what they do at like charity auctions, I would say, like. Yeah. You yeah. Know, today. So and it was like equivalent. It was like something to do. Right. Yeah. Like it was like live performances so you'd go yeah. um so meanwhile she actually did continue to do her inventions do her inventions i don't think that's how you say that <laughs> but apparently that's how i say i that. know what you mean i know what you mean. <laughs> i'm not a scientist if it was unclear before i think i clarified just now um so she was very self-taught no formal training, but she would tinker with things. She created a traffic stoplight. Uh, she created a tablet that would dissolve in water to create a carbonated drink. But I mean, we already had Alka-Seltzer at the time and apparently it, it, it tasted like Alka-Seltzer, which was not her plan. So during World War II, she had read that radio controlled torpedoes had been proposed. However, an enemy might be able to jam such a torpedo's guidance system and set it off course. So she discussed this with her friend, uh, who was a composer and pianist, George Antheil, and they raised the idea that a frequency hopping signal might prevent, prevent the torpedo's radio guidance system from being tracked or jammed. So they received a patent for an idea of a radio signaling device or a secret communication system, which was a means of changing radio frequencies to keep enemies from decoding messages. So it was originally designed to defeat the, the Nazis, um, but it was it actually became an important step in the development of technology uh, to maintain the security of military communications and cell phones. Uh, yep. He, I, this is so fascinating. He synchronized a miniaturized player piano mechanism with radio signals. Um, and then it says Antiel did it, but I think they worked together, sketched out the idea for the frequency hopping system, um, which was, which was to use a perforated paper tape, which actuated pneumatic controls. Okay. I don't know what I just said, but I decided to say it because people listening might know what I just said. So that's what I just said. It's very scientific. Something for smart people. Yes, for the yeah. smart people. Um, and then, so they, they employed a man named Samuel Stewart Makedown, who is a professor of radio electrical engineering at Caltech to implement the idea. 
Um, and then she hired a law firm to search for prior knowledge and to craft for the, uh, craft the application for the patent, which was granted on August 11th, 1942, under her name, her married name, Hetty Keisler Markey. So she was married to the Markey guy at the time, I guess. So they didn't adopt the technology until the 60s. The principles of their work are incorporated into Bluetooth and GPS technology and are similar methods in uh, the legacy or like the, the, the OG version of Wi-Fi. So, yep. okay, that's cool. Eddie Lamar created Hedy- something that led to Wi-Fi like, and Bluetooth technology. That's Amazing. Amazing. She kind of blows my mind. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, she's like still like going teehee. I'm pretty in movies. And she was very talented. She just wasn't able to do her own thing. Um, and so she formed a production company in 1945, um, which they made a couple of movies. Um, her biggest success was Delilah in Samson and Delilah in 1950. And then a couple of others that that uh, one was like well over budget and not a commercial success. Uh, so she was she was finding her ground, you know, as a like as a creator of films, too. So around this point, her career went into decline around like the f- later 50s. So she went to Italy to play multiple roles in a movie called Loves of Three Queens in 1954, which she also produced. Um, this one apparently was <laughs> somewhat of an epic failure in terms of how much money was lost, which was millions. Um, so that wasn't great. And then she played a couple of other things. Um, but I think she started having some issues that I, I mean, is not talked about based on the research that I did, which is not, you know, by no means, AKA hashtag not historians, but she was signed to act in the 1966 film Picture Mommy Dead, but she was let go. She collapsed during filming from nervous exhaustion. And I mean, if you're going to collapse from nervous exhaustion, you're obviously fired. Right. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. Right. You can't have feelings unless we're filming them for the movie. Um, Say that again. You cut out a little bit. Oh, did I? I said you can't have feelings unless we're filming them for the movie. Right. Actual feelings on your time. No, thank you. Um, And this autobiography that I've referred to called Ecstasy and Me was published in 1966. So she said on TV that it wasn't written by her, that much of it was fictional. She sued the publisher. She said many details were fabricated by its ghostwriter. But then she was sued by a man named Gene Ringgold, who asserted that the book plagiarized material from an article he had written in 1965 for Screen Facts magazine. Um. I don't know what happened after that, but I think that, listen, there, like there were, she had some drug issues as well. And so as I keep talking, you'll allegedly is all alleged. It's all alleged, which is why, like, I don't, I know, I know that there were some issues. <laughs> That's it. But in 1966, she was arrested in Los Angeles for shoplifting. So the charges were eventually dropped 
1991, she was arrested on the same charge in Florida. She stole $21.48 worth of laxatives and eye drops. She pleaded no contest to avoid a court appearance, and the charges were dropped in return for her promise to refrain from breaking any major laws for a year. So, just to hear them, um, the 70s, it was a decade of, of increasing seclusion. She was offered scripts and television commercials and stage projects, but none that piqued her interest. And then in 1974, did you know this? I did not know this. Okay. She filed a $10 million lawsuit against Warner Brothers uh, and their Warner sister death. Sorry, I can't help it. I've been watching Animaniacs. Um, uh, Clay, do you watch Animaniacs? I haven't in a while, but okay. I know what you're doing. Yeah. But if you did, you would think that was really funny. Okay. okay. Um, so remember in Blazing Saddles, Headley Lamar? Yeah. Yeah, she was pissed. So she sued them for $10 million. Um, he, Mel Brooks said he was flattered. Uh, the studio settled out of court for an undisclosed nominal sum and an apology. It said an apology to her for almost using her name. And Mel Brooks said that she never got the joke, quote unquote. Um, okay. With her eyesight failing, she retreated from public life. She settled in Miami Beach in 1981. So in 1997, her and Antiel received the Electronic Frontier Foundation Pioneer Award and the Bulbig Nass Spirit of Achievement Bronze Award, which is given to individuals whose creative lifetime achievements in the arts, sciences, business, or invention fields has significantly contributed to society. Um, there was an image of her on a software suite cover, uh, in 1996. She didn't want that. She sued the company. It was complicated. I think they, they, yeah, they settled because they used her image because thanking her for her work. Um, but you have to pay for that image. Yes. yes. Um, she has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Um, now, this is very sad. She became estranged from her older son, James, when he was 12 years old. Um, and their relationship ended abruptly. And it says he moved in with another family. They didn't speak again for almost 50 years. She left him out of her will. And he sued for control of her $3.3 million estate when she passed in the year 2000. Um, and then he eventually settled for $50,000. So um, there, there's a movie in 2017, director Alexander Dean. Um, it, it was a documentary called Bombshell, the Hedy Lamar story. And that goes into her issues with drug addiction and, and, and more about her technology work, um, which I like, I recommend. Um, so it, uh, I'm going to say one more thing. They were in 2014 inducted posthumously into the National Inventors Hall of Fame, which I think is something that would like, I think it's sad she didn't know that she got into that for doing what she did. Yeah, I love um, that though. Yeah, right. So she, she led a very, very interesting life. 
Yeah, Hedy Lamar, thank you for sharing that. You're very welcome. I mean, she's amazing. Yeah, amazing. And you guys should go and look up her pictures, her films. Yes. Uh, also check out uh, You Must Remember This podcast as well. Uh, I think uh, Karina does a really great episode on her. And um, uh, we're going to, for my Notorious Women woman yeah. this week, it's actually Notorious Women. It's a duo. Oh, uh, we're going to okay. do a 180 degree turn. Okay. So Let's my go. Notorious Women for <laughs> this episode <laughs> are, I believe it's pronounced Raya, but it could be Raya, but it's Raya and Sakina. They're okay. Sisters. Have you ever heard of them? No. Okay. So my sources today are mainly from um, an article, uh, an EgyptianStreet.com article by Nadine Khalid. Okay. Uh, entitled Rhea and Sakina, the true story behind Egypt's notorious killers. Oh, uh, my God. Another article, uh, a Medium.com article by Ad Maliora. Uh, entitled Raya and Sakina, The Obscure Truth Behind the Killings, uh, Serial Killings. Uh, and then a YouTube channel. Uh, there's a channel called the Brief Case Channel. It's like history and, and crime and things like that. So it was a really great uh, episode. And then Wikipedia and other uh, shorter uh, videos on YouTube. So, okay. Now, so, Raya. Or Raya, but Raya was born in, she's the older sister. She was born in 1875. Both Raya and Sakina oh. were born, uh, 1875 and 1885, respectively. Okay. Uh, Raya was born in Aswan, which is, uh, Aswan, Egypt to Ali and Zainab Haman. Okay. Um, now, Shortly after she was born, her father, uh, she and her sister, when they were growing up, their father died. Okay. Um, and so, uh, actually, after she was born, and so her pregnant mother at the time moved to a place called Kafir el Sheikh. Forgive okay. my pronunciation. A province <laughs> in the Nile Delta between Dometa and Alexandria, uh, where she and then um, her sister, Sakina, who was born in, like I said, 1885, mainly grew up. So okay. they mainly grew up in this area. Now, during this during their childhood, the family was very poor, very, very poor. And they barely uh, were surviving. Um, and so because of this, Sakina and Raya were often sent out to sell things on the street just to eke out a, a living like vegetables, wow. okay. any other basic goods. So they were very, very poor. Okay. Um, now, Raya was the older, so she was married off first, but her husband died uh, soon after. So, in, oh, wow. you know, as a Muslim cu uh, custom at the time, um, she his her husband's younger brother Hasbala offered to marry her. That's a Jewish thing too. Yeah. And back yeah. then I think cuz women couldn't really they didn't have jobs yeah. and things like that. So that was like a very normal thing. Um now Hasbala, he worked in the cotton industry. So he basically worked in like a cotton factory, anything related to that industry because of it's Egypt so they're known for their cotton. Right? Yeah, Egyptian cotton, y'all. Yeah. Those are the exactly. expensive sheets, you know? Exactly. Now, Sakina, the younger sister, again, she was born in 1885. So she eventually married. Uh, but after her and her husband uh, lost their first child, the oh. marriage ended in divorce. Okay. 
That's so tough. Sakina, in order to just get a new fresh start, she moved to Alexandria. Uh, now, Alexandria was known as like urban, like it's like moving from the country to the city. It was okay. known as like up and coming cosmopolitan area. Um, so she moved there and then Hasbala and Raya, they were having a hard time and Hasbala realized it's hard to take care of a wife. And they later had, I think, believe four children of their own. So his job wasn't cutting it. So he and Raya eventually moved to Alexandria following Sakina. Okay. So, yeah. So, so they're all in Alexandria together. Now. They're all in Alexandria together. Okay. And, and, and after she was divorced, uh, Sakina eventually found another love, another man that she married. So, okay. well, that's good. you know, the two sisters and their husbands are now living in Alexandria. Okay. Okay. So again, they all moved to Alexandria in hopes of better opportunities, uh, you know, and they got into, you know, in addition to doing stuff that they knew about, they also got into what what we would consider today calling uh, subletting. So basically, oh, yeah. they would rent out like a couple rooms, and then they would rent out those rooms. They would sublet those. Rooms. Girl, real estate is where it's at. Yeah, they yeah. were ahead of the game. Okay, yeah. Got it. And now this was a little bit more complicated because. Because they were poor, as you can imagine, they they had been arrested throughout their lives for like petty crimes, usually okay. involved with thievery. So they couldn't really rent out these places a lot of times. Uh, so they'd have to go through, quote unquote, dealers. Oh, so the God. subletting became a little bit more complicated, but it was okay. working for a while. It was working. Okay. Um, and again, uh, and just so for note, uh, Sakina's husband was a man named Muhammad Abdullah. Ab- Abdullah, I think it's Abdullah. I think this, I could be pronou- mispronouncing that. So okay. it's Raya and Hasbala. That's her husband. And Sakina and Abdullah, Muhammad Abdullah. Okay. Okay. So they did this business for a while. Like I said, it was fine. But then Sakina and Raya got the idea. Now, they got the idea that to go into, uh, uh, let's say, um, they, okay, this is what, <laughs> at some point, uh-huh. they, along with two other men, uh, men named Orabi and, uh, Abdul Rez, they uh-huh. decided to focus on expanding this type of business. So they rented an entire house. Oh, okay. That they called, that became now known as the House of Beauty, in which the first floor was dedicated to gatherings. Okay. And the middle was a bar and a place for smoking, okay. uh, like hashish and other things. Yeah. Uh, you know, water pipes, that kind of thing, you know. And then the second floor was exclusively for the guests and their quote unquote companions. Oh, they made a whorehouse. Ah, you okay, got it. Okay. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, bravo, baby. Yeah, baby. Oh, yeah. Oldest profession. Okay. Works every time. It does. Hundred percent. Now the house was close to a British Army base, so business okay. was good. Yeah. Okay, girls, you know what you're doing. Okay. And they didn't discriminate. They brought in the mm. British. Yeah, the local fine. people. Anybody could come in. Even women you- could come in. <laughs> Are you a human with money? Welcome. Exactly. Yes. Now, for context, a side note, in 1914, World War I broke out in Europe after yes. Archduke 
Franz Ferdinand was shot. Um, sparking war in Europe and Egypt had been basically occupied by the British since night, since 1885. Okay. Yes. So the war, the war, like it, it upended a lot of the, uh, the normal, uh, businesses. So that's also why Hezbollah started having trouble in the cotton industry. So he's trying to work a legit job, but the war upended that, right? Which is, that made the need for them to find other forms of of, of making money. Uh, But the war is also good in other ways. So because they moved this house, and that's why they got the idea to have this house near the British army base, that's also why business was good. Okay. And one historian in one of the articles uh, also noted that World War One, because it disrupted normal uh, business opportunities, it at the same time, it it allowed like what you, what you would call, quote unquote, informal economy to emerge and it allowed yeah. Egypt's poor like Raya and Sakina and their husbands to earn money in unconventional jobs. I think that's how it should be. You know what I'm saying? I know. Yeah. Let's just people make their money. Okay. Yeah. Let's like regulate the health and safety of things without, you know, throwing judgment shade. You know, that's what I think. Yeah. So business was good. Now, business was so good that they eventually opened up four different brothels throughout the city. Okay. Okay. We're running the town. Okay. Yeah. And for the first time in their lives, they're actually successful at something. They're not only just making ends meet, but they actually have a surplus. They're actually making a lot of money. Ooh, what's that like? I don't know. I know, right? So this is again, (laughs) and I'm sorry, the British had been in uh, Egypt since 1882. Excuse me. Oh, okay. I misspoke. Yeah. So they, so business was good with the brothel. The war helped that. It helped that. Yeah. But the war ended in 1918. Yes, it did. So when the war ended, that a lot of the British soldiers started going back home. Mm, so they started to lose yeah. some of their, yeah, their customer base. And then things started to kind of go back to normal, quote unquote. So the the money that they're able to make in these informal economies is starting to dry up. Mm. Okay. Okay. Now, on top of that, so this started to happen about 1918. On top of that, okay. in 1919, yeah. um, the the local Egyptian uh, people started to rebel. So there started to be and, and, and want to throw off the shackles of colonialism because that's right. basically what it is, right? Yeah, fair. So, you know, while, you know, military things not uh, far away (laughs) may help the business problems right on your front door hurt Mm. business yeah Mm -hmm. which is a shame it's a shame so needless to say the brothel started to suffer and so all of a sudden they're freaking out desperate at the possibility of their new wealth disappearing right before their eyes and throwing them back into the, you know, barely surviving state that they know so well. And at one point they did start to like kind of go hungry. Like that's how quickly it went away. Cause I would imagine that they're probably spending. Yeah. Like a crazy amount of money. You got to sell that Rolls Royce girls. You got to sell it. 
Yeah, but I think, I know, you know, I new money doesn't always know how to hold on to money. They don't I have don't. Also, like, I would be in a lot of trouble. I would be also, like, oh, <laughs> this is the two-month extravaganza trip we're all going on, you know. Yeah, and also the thing about when newfound wealth, a lot of times you don't have access to people that help you that teach you how to build it and hold on to it. That's in true. Times I have a like husband these. who would be like, don't go on that trip, Miriam. Yeah. And I would be like, oh, okay. Yeah. So according to some authorities and scholars in 1919, around this time, realizing that the their precarious position was basically coming back, right. the gang's homicidal tendencies began to surge. Uh-oh. That's not so... Good. According to historians, and it's probably true because women are just smarter than men. I'm just going to say it. That's um, fine. That's true. Rhea and Sakina came up with the idea of uh, befriending and luring wealthy women from the markets to their house to steal okay. their money. Because back then, um, you know, uh, Alexandria was known for a lot of wealthy wealth people, uh, wealthy people and wealth um, and people that they had you know, probably kind of like emulated around this time. But back then, wealthy Egyptians didn't put their money in banks. They put it in gold that they often wore oh. in jewelry. Oh, so if you get that jewelry, you get that wealth. Okay. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. So they came up with the idea to steal, to lure the women back to the house. And this is what authorities think what happened. So okay. they would go to markets and because they're women and, you know, other women feel comfortable with them. They would yeah. lure them back to the house, to the one of one or both their homes at some point. Start making them like give them drinks, offer them drinks, get them drunk. And once they're drunk, the husbands would come in and kill the women. Wow. They would steal the jewelry okay. and then dispose of the bodies. Oftentimes, either near or under the homes what yeah wait what homes their homes or the yeah where where they were staying no their homes so where they were staying because again they're back (laughs) they're back to renting places because they their money is just yeah so uh now so authorities believe they did this from 1919 until about 1921 oh my god for two years yep stop they're just disappearing. Women are just disappearing. Yes. Oh and people were wow. on the lookout because obviously these are well-off people. So their family members are reporting them. And, yeah. and you know, so policemen were sort of on the lookout for stuff, but they could never really find getting any leads, right? So Because this- nobody knew how this was happening because right. once, oh, that's, I mean, awful, but very clever, but awful, very clever. But very yeah. clever. Okay. Now, around this time, a policeman discovered a body in the streets near uh, the neighborhood of where the two couples lived. Okay. Also around this time, the owner of one of the apartment buildings that Sakina rented out uh, got an offer to rent out uh, an apartment by a wealthy Italian man. But okay. the man requested that the water pipes be changed because they were very old. Okay. So, while putting in new pipes, uh, workers found the remains of a body that was mm-hmm. later linked back to the room that Sakina rented secondhand. <gasps> oh, wow. 
Oh my so God. authorities were called in and immediately they go into Sakina's house and there's a strong odor and she's constantly burning incense. And they're like, huh, <sighs> that's weird. Huh, huh, that is weird. Hmm. So at first they were like, they brought him in for questioning, but they couldn't really make anything stick. But the authorities kept digging and eventually ten, 17 victims' bodies, women, women and men, Oh were God. discovered underneath Rhea and Sakina's house, uh, apartments, <gasps> places where they were living. Ten were eventually identified, but the other seven were too decomposed to identify. What? Oh, my God. What? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So I'm, I need a minute, but keep going. This is fascinating. Yeah. Ooh, 17. So, right. 17. Damn. So the trial began on May... 12, 1921. And it included, so basically the sisters kind of start to turn on each other. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, so authorities were able to get Rhea's daughter, uh, Bedia, Bedia, I believe that's how you said, Bedia, who was a very young girl, but she testified that she had witnessed her parents committing the crimes. Jesus, that is trauma. Okay. Yeah. Whew. So four days later on May 16th, Rhea, Sakina, and their husbands, and the two accomplices that were kind of like their bodyguards and probably like uh, muscle, were found guilty. Okay. And sentenced to death. I mean, probably don't murder people. That's probably right. I don't know. And the jeweler who would purchase the stolen merchandise was sentenced to five years in prison. Okay. I mean... now. Yeah, I mean, because who's to say that he knew about the murders? He just, but he was selling, you know, you know, stolen goods. I mean, I'm not a capital punishment kind of gal, but like, I mean, don't kill, you know, 17 people. And then like 17 people. That makes me, that makes me fear you as a human, you know, that you're just like, I have an idea. Let's murder people. No. Mm. Mm -mm. Yeah. Now the, so on December 21st, so about six months later, uh, or seven months later, on December 21st, 1921, Rhea and Sakina were hanged. Oh, wow. Okay. Being the first women to be given corporal punishment in Egypt's history. Wow. And then way the following make- day, their two husbands were also hanged. Yeah. Way to make the history books, ladies. Um, yeah. Why were the men hung a day? Why did they get to live another day? Is it because they're men and they have penises? What happened? No, that's a great question. So those are bas- that's basically what happened. That's the facts that I gave you. Okay. Now, how much of this is true is has been up for debate for a while. Oh, okay. A lot of people feel like... So there's two theories of basically what happened. So the okay. first theory is that what I just told you happened, that they, you know, that they basically uh, came up with the ideas and they were kind of leading it. And the men went along, da da da. But so that's the first theory. But also within that theory, you know, a lot of people were uncomfortable. So Nadine Khalid in her article, she she notes that from the start, misogyny was rampant in the way that the story was structured and 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 um uh, yeah presented to the public. Well, right? I mean, the way you just told the story was like they did all these things and then the men came in and they killed them. But then it was like, wait, so they handed the ladies a drink and the men committed murder. Right. I'm not saying they weren't accomplices 100 percent. 
But they and, also could have been given no choice but to go bring this back. You know what I'm saying? Or they, like, uh, they, they were all equally culpable and, and right. money hungry. But the way it was framed and the dean also notes that Nadine Khalid also notes that despite a precedent case uh, around the same time in Tanta where a man named uh, Mahmoud Alam had committed a series of murders exclusively of female victims, the case of Raya and Sakina gained more attention in media coverage because the perpetrators involved were women. Mm, okay. And it was linking. So they also use it to link Raya and Sakina to misdeeds to, quote unquote, public immorality in society, <laughs> casting the women and their crimes through a very specific lens. Basically, okay. women. Am I right, dudes? Am I right? <laughs> bitches, right? <laughs> yeah. Bitches be bitches. OK, you know yeah. what? First of all, we're taking that word back. Yeah. All hail the bitches. All hail the bitches. Second of all, I just even like the way you were telling the story like i now that you're bringing it back like you're right that didn't sit it doesn't sit well yeah in terms of like and yeah it's basically like it's it's always a woman's fault right so despite the four men four men and two women being involved the way the story was framed was to put most of the focus and blame therefore the blame on the two women yeah. So it's, it's misogyny, pure and simple. Which... It's full on. Not, not that they didn't accomplish the shit out of this, maybe. Yeah. But also, like, how many ways can, can this be spun for this to exist? If you were going to make this story, right? If we're going to make the movie or write the book, right? You could have it where they were desperate and they didn't know what to do and their husbands were freaking out. And they said, we're going to do this. You have to go to the market and bring them back here. And they were yeah. like, no, I don't want to. Like, who knows, right? Or they were like, great idea. But we actually have no idea. Yeah, and also the fact that they were running brothels. So again, that's, you know, tied to the moral immorality of these it, women. And so they must be evil. Exactly. Cause, yeah, and even the way that they talked about the women in the newspapers, they would often uh, name Rhea and Sakina and then just say their husbands. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. You know, but that's why we have to like un illegalize. See, that's not a word. And I went to college, but my primary education was in the States. But we need to stop demonizing things like prostitution, because to me, running a brothel does not tell me you are a good or bad person. It just tells me you run a brothel. Yeah. But and also society. it's society. Mm. Yeah. Um. Uh, Hold on. Um, And also just just keep in mind that, you know, this misogyny, it doesn't mean that these women are like not guilty, but it's just like, why are they more guilty than their husbands? I don't think they are. But I think it's like, oh, this is what happens. Blah, blah, blah. Must keep our women from going down this terrible road. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Professor Elena Chidi, a professor of Middle Eastern and Turkish studies at Stockholm University, she also notes that uh, that like it's all misogyny the way it was framed. But also just keep in mind that um, that these women were not uh, that ultimately they were still complicit in these murders. So they weren't innocent. So even if we reframe and really uh, have a fresh look at how it was framed to to keep that in mind. But she also 
recommends that you say uh, her, along with a lot of other um, uh, historians, say that in, instead of saying uh, just refer to this as the 1921 murder cases rather than the case of Rhea and Sakina. Yeah. You yeah. know, the fact that why, again, why does the woman have to get more than what she more than what she deserves and less than what she deserves in society? Yeah. Because, again, there were four men totally. and two women. But yeah. the way it was framed, the women are supposedly more uh, guilty than the men. Ugh. Because yeah. women should uphold the moral values to teach unto the children that they should continue to bear whilst barefoot and cooking their men dinner. That's why, Lavetta. So yeah, simple. I know. Yeah. And then uh, now another theory is that they didn't commit these murders at all, that it was all designed uh, to uh, turn the focus away. To, it was all designed to uh to convict these people on a bogus trumped up charges because they were revolutionaries, Egyptian revolutionaries. Oh. So that's another theory. Okay. That they were resistance fighters and the government run by the British basically came, run by the British and some, you know, and their Egyptian puppets to, yes. to demonize these freedom fighters. So that's another theory that I also want to throw wow. out there as well. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah. And so that's something that keep in mind when you're listening to these stories, particularly the older stories in a part of the world that you may not be as familiar with the political climate of it, um, that sometimes the way things are framed are not always, even if the facts in it are true that they were convicted and hanged. I mean, we have the same the issue behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Like we have the same issue in our own country with certain stories and of, of what happened we like i feel like now we're currently trying to relook at some things so i you know other yeah, and cultures and societal norms that we don't quite understand might even be in our own society story. a yeah, lot of us are revisiting stuff from the 90s like yep. and also keep in mind you know a lot of historians are saying even if you believe the first thing happened that this is really more i mean these people are bloodthirsty but this was really a a, a, a like a a crime, you know, perpetrated because of the economic status, of the yeah. economic hardships that, yeah. you know, one would say that not all poor people end up killing people for their money. Um, and then people's, uh, you know, murderous tendencies kind of come out. But also keep in mind that because of their economic circumstance, this was like, like rife with allowing this for them to even land on this idea yeah yeah you know but i yeah i just I, fascinating to me i know we could go on for days we probably shouldn't but running a brothel to murdering just feels like a giant leap exactly you know I mean? exactly That's I, can't, I can't wrap my brain around it there are two different types of murders. It's like, you know me, I love a, yeah. uh, I'm a true crime person. Yes, and people who run brothels or gamble or even people who steal, that's a very different uh, mm -hmm. thing than people who kill 17 people. Yeah, I'm just that you you're like, you know, we were on a boat in Italy and now in the Sahara. What happened? You know? Yeah. Yeah, I just but it's just it's just really interesting to just always even when we're telling stories, you know, I was so glad that I found like that second theory because it's like, yeah, huh, that's really, really interesting. I think it's that. Um, I think it's totally that, <laughs> you know, it's like, did they really kill? It? And apparently, you know, obviously, this is a huge 
story in Egypt. You know, a lot of Egyptians know about this story. They've had tons of, you know, TV shows and films and, and, uh, media around, uh, this case. Okay. Um, but you know, some of the historians will want you, you know, they just want you to really think about it. Like whatever the truth is. Yeah. Um, like just always when you hear stories about murder, again, this is not to justify murder. Uh, me personally, it sounds like, uh, because a lot of the, uh, especially Muslim, um, historians that are female, I, I'm, tend to gonna lean in their direction they do believe it was this happened but again the way it was uh framed was that sakina and Rhea were the masterminds right they're the real evil these evil women it's kind of like that whole eve thing eve made adam do absolutely you know um that's kind of like how i'm feeling but again i'm not sure i mean i'd love to hear from like any especially of our, our Middle Eastern listeners who are familiar with this story, what their thoughts on it are. You know, oh, I'd love, if, yes. You know, if it's something that they, you know, that they can shed some light on, um, you know, of this story. But I just thought it, but I do believe that they were serial killers. Yeah. Uh, but they were part of a group of six people yeah. who killed. I don't think they, I don't know. This doesn't feel right that they were the absolute mastermind because they could also, I don't know, they could have poisoned them. Like they could have been the perpetrator, but they weren't. They brought them in and then according to the story, right? And then their husbands came in and did the deed. And also keep in mind that they got the women drunk, but the men strangled the women. Yeah. Strangled the women. Okay. You know, the victims, they strangled them. So fascinating. um, so, yeah, that's the story of Rhea and Sakina of Egypt from 1921 serial killers. That is that is a good find. Well, wow. what a way to end our first season <laughs> of Notorious say. Women. You know, oh, I like yeah. a murderess. Oh, I love a murderess. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, Lord. I like a bad girl. I like a bad yeah, girl. In, in, in my history and in my podcast, not in my real life now. No, absolutely not. Right. Or I don't think you'd like me as a friend because I'm so good. I know. I'm not that good. Uh Well, well, that wraps it up for another episode of Notorious Women Podcast. We'd love to know what you guys think. Again, thank you for listening to us. Um, We really appreciate it. Uh, Please remember to follow us on all the things, to subscribe, to download, to share. Again, copy the link and just send it to your friends or loved ones or family. Uh, spread the word. Uh, uh, we send also us your have, suggestions. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, we also have a Patreon page now that is live. Yes. Um, that you can go to. Just go to what is it? Patreon. Dot com dot slash com notorious women. What she said. Yeah, that. Um, come hang out with us there. You can join for as little as two dollars a month, or like a thousand dollars a month. Whatever you you know feel is reasonable. We are yeah. here for you. Um, thank you so much for joining us for season one. If you have missed episodes, catch up because they're there on all the things. Um, and we'll be back. We should be back next week, the beginning of season two, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're not going to, I don't think we're going to take a break, uh, in between there, but, um, 
Yeah, we love your support, guys. And uh, Miriam, do you want to tell them what our handle for IG is and our email address? I do. So I, that. I do. And, and while you're doing that, I will tell yeah. them for Patreon. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Notorious Women. You can find us there. And uh, IG is Notorious Women Podcast. Come play. I have a lot of fun there. Uh, it's good times. And then for our Gmail, it is NotoriousWMPod at gmail.com. If uh, honestly, that was a lot. So you can also DM us at Notorious Women Podcast on Instagram. That also works too. Um, and let us know what you think, your thoughts, your ideas. Um, we could have conversations. I like conversations. Yeah. Uh, and that's it. All right, guys, that wraps it up. And we will see you uh, hopefully next week. No, we will. We'll see you da- next yes. week. For season All right, All right. two. All right. Bye bye. Bye. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.